Hare Krishna, Jagannath. Should we allow Nanda Leela to record this? I guess we can. The live <laughs> Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Everyone that has video, please turn it on. It's like wonderful to see everybody. So if you have video, please reveal yourself, your two-handed forms. Yeah. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. So, uh, Dina. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> would you, would you um, like, like to introduce our program? Or? Yes, I would. Thank you. I appreciate you um, coming to talk to us in Philly. Um, I just wanted to tell everybody a little bit about Arindayananda Dasko Swami. <laughs> HDG. HDG. Um, yeah, it's easier to say. Um, so he's uh, a disciple of Srila Prabhupada. He was initiated in the earlier days in 1970, and um, he took sannyas uh, at a young age, age 23, and uh, he opened many temples uh, in South America, and also in, in uh, Gainesville as well, probably other places too that I don't even know about. Um, he also translated the 10th uh, canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. Uh, he received his uh, PhD from Harvard in Sanskrit and Indian studies in a record amount of time. And uh, he's a prolific writer, he's a lecturer, um, and he's dedicated to spreading Krishna consciousness um, in the West. And he has a lot of innovative uh, methods. He's also very compassionate and kind, and he is very well-rounded. He's also a musician. <laughs> He plays classical music to relax. <laughs> anyway, so welcome. Thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Dina Dio is my very dear spiritual sister <laughs> and my fellow Ivy League graduate. So um, thank you all very much for coming. It's a pleasure to see all of you. And uh, <clears throat> so... Uh, Prabhupada, uh, I, I think you all know who Prabhupada is. So um, Prabhupada was um, the most compassionate person I ever met. And uh, in my relationship with Prabhupada, in the time I spent with him, um, or just observing him. I mean, whether in my own conversations with Prabhupada or, um, or just observing him, speaking to others or doing whatever he was doing. Um, <clears throat> he was absolutely focused on his service to Krishna. And that is practical self-realization. Jivar Sarupohoi Krishna Nitya Das, that the, the jiva, the living being, every one of us, I mean, the good news is we all get to be living beings. I mean, we're one of the lucky, I guess, infinite number. That, uh, I mean, just imagine the almost inexpressible gratitude we should all feel that we get to exist. 
it's interesting because one one of the arguments uh, for the existence of God, probably the strongest argument, one which I don't think really has a, a serious refutation, was given by um, Aristotle and by Prabhupada. Prabhupada also always gave the same argument. I mean, in his own form. It's called the argument from contingency. Prabhupada's form of this argument was that um, you have a father, your father has a father, or your parents have their parents and so on. And so there must be an original father. And so this simple formulation was expressed by Aristotle. And he said that on logical grounds, Aristotle was, I would say Plato is more religious than Aristotle. Aristotle sometimes said, hey, I'm not so impious. I have God in my system too. But Aristotle's God, it's, it's Aristotle has God in his philosophy sort of as a logical necessity. And he basically gave the same argument. Oh, Jaisita. And he basically gave the same argument as, as, uh, as Prabhupada. Aristotle said that everything that exists in this world depends for something else on its existence. Like Prabhupada said, I exist because my parents begot me, at least biologically. Or a tree exists because water and earth and a seed and sunshine all combined to grow into a tree. So everything in this world depends on something else for its existence. Nothing exists independently. And therefore, Aristotle said, or, or as, the, as the argument is sometimes given, why does anything exist? We can imagine, we can imagine what if it had been the case that nothing ever existed? So if everything that exists depends on something else, how could that be? How could the whole system get started? Therefore, Aristotle concluded in his language, there must be, there must be an unmoved mover. There must be something that is moving everything, but is unmoved. And the same idea is expressed in the first verse of Brahma Sangita. Anadir Adir, Govinda. Govinda is the origin of everything, and he has no origin. So whether it's Prabhupada's example of, you know, who's the original father, or Aristotle's unmoved mover, or the Brahma Sangita's Anadir Adir Govinda, uh, the idea is, that Krishna must be there, God is there. So we are completely dependent for just to exist on Krishna. And so we should be, there should be no limit to our gratitude. And then of course the question is, how do you express that gratitude? And Prabhupada as Krishna's pure devotee revealed to us how to best express that gratitude by helping others. If you are grateful for what you have received, share your good fortune with others. Last night I was lying in bed, <clears throat> yeah, you know, trying to get to sleep. And um, for some reason I could, I could kind of feel my heart beating. And, and I thought, that's impossible. It's impossible to happen by itself. And if you think about it, the heart, it's this thing. I mean, uh, Dina Diana is all about it. She's a medical professional. So you have the heart and it's just pumping. I thought, my God, this thing's been going on for, well, 
you know, uh, sannyasis never like to reveal their age, but, you know, but this heart, this thing has been going on for so long and the lungs. And so you have this like super absurdly sophisticated machine with the lungs pumping oxygen and the heart beating, uh, you know, sending blood and actually the blood carrying the oxygen. Correct me if, don't correct me if I'm wrong, Dina. So, so you have the heart and you have the lungs. And now with our knowledge of microbiology, we know that we know that the body is, is millions of times more complex and absurdly sophisticated in its design than Darwin ever knew about. Darwin was operating with a very primitive knowledge of biology. It's kind of a mechanical because Darwin's industrial revolution, you know, mechanics, you build machines, machines make things. So Darwin has this mechanical idea of biology. But now we know in the digital age and in information systems, and we now know that inside the cells, it's really information transfer that's going on. Because the reason that the little, you know, all the moving parts in your body operate in a certain way is because they're programmed to do that and things are programmed by information. And so it's just, it's like absurdly, infinitely complicated, the body. And um, so, the, so the idea that this arose by itself is becoming more and more absurd. Don't unmute yourself unless you want to uh, declare a very large donation that you want to send to me. That's the only, only under that circumstance can you unmute yourself. So anyway, so it's just, it's just obvious. It's obvious that, that we have this miraculous good fortune. We have this miraculous good fortune to exist, to exist forever because we're eternal souls. And even though we're kind of, you know, we misbehaved a bit. So Krishna, fortunately, not being a jealous, angry God, in other words, a God that needs a whole list of 12-step programs. You know, the, the good news is that Krishna is actually a nice guy. And he's created this whole virtual world for us. It's like a virtual reality because we're experiencing the world as if we were material bodies, even though we're not. And it appears that we are interacting with the physical world. Like if you drink a cup of water, it, it seems like your hand, you know, grasps the cup or, you know, you're, you're drinking the water, but actually we are not interacting with the material world. It's just through this body, this virtual reality machine. So, Krishna's done all this and, and he invites us. We have like a standing invitation to go to the spiritual world. So therefore, the symptom of someone that actually gets it, the symptom of one who actually understands what is going on is unlimited gratitude. And the expression of that gratitude is trying to please Krishna by doing what he loves best. Now, the good news is that Krishna does not love rituals as much as we often do. In fact, 
So what does Krishna want us to do? In, in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, one, of the, one of the most frequently quoted verses in the Gita is uh, 434, just learn the truth by approaching the guru and so on. Now, interestingly, the first word of that sentence in Sanskrit is tat, which means that, tat vidhi, know that, or that, no. And so in Sanskrit, as in English, if a sentence begins with that, the logical question is, what's that? So if someone says to you, know that, you're going to say, know what? So if we want to know what that is, that which you're supposed to know by approaching someone who knows, is explained in the previous verse, as you would expect. Although we have the Gita in chapters, there actually are paragraphs. And anyway, so in the previous verse, Krishna says something very striking, very bold. Krishna says, Shayan, Dravyamayat, Jagyat, Jnana Jagya Parantapa, Sarvam Karmakilam Parata, Jnane Parisamapyate. So I'll explain that verse, and then it gets to really the essence of, of Lord Chaitanya's mission. Um, the first word is shayan. In Sanskrit, there are uh, there are comparative and superlative degrees, like you can say good, better, best, or fine, finer, finest. And you could do that in Sanskrit, actually in a few ways. But in any case, the word sri, the word sri, like sri patelji, you know, Sri means good, it can mean beautiful, it can mean the goddess of fortune, it can mean many, it's, it's, there are all these positive meanings. So the way you say in Sanskrit, very good, is Shreyas. Shreya means very good, and of course, best, most good is Shreshta. So anyway, Krishna says Shreyan, which means better. Shreyan Dravyamaya Dyagya. Better than offering me things, better than offering to me with paraphernalia. And the word Krishna uses for paraphernalia is dravya. Um, dravya means an actual physical thing, like, for example, a giwik or water or, or, or incense. I mean, actual physical things are called dravya. So, dravya, so Krishna says better than simply offering me these ritual items, material things, jnana yajna, offer me knowledge. The, the, the knowledge offering, jnana yajna, or jnana yajna, or jnana yajna, it's one of those words that uh, suffers from multi-pronunciations. So, um, so what is, so therefore, Krishna is saying better is that you, is that you offer knowledge. What is it, what is the jnana yajna, or the jnana yajna, what does that mean? And actually, I had a similar instruction from Prabhupada. Prabhupada paraphrased this verse of Bhagavad Gita soon after he made me the GBC of Latin America. I was, you know, I was senior and mature and ready to manage 20 countries because I was already 25 years old. That was a joke. But that's the way ISKCON was back then. So Prabhupada, I was, I was alone with him. And I for the month previous to that, to the Mayapur meetings, I was, it was in Mayapur, I had been sort of Prabhupada's secretary, really just sort of hanging out there with Prabhupada, and he was telling me different things. And so um, he said to me, do not focus as GBC on building temples 
and elaborate deity worship. He said, do not focus on that. He, then he said, for the more advanced devotees, this is Prabhupada, for the more advanced devotees, there is knowledge. In other words, like writing books, reading books, distributing books. In other words, learning and teaching, to put it simply, which in Sanskrit, uh, that patan um, patan, like the duties of Brahman, studying and then teaching. So Prabhupada said to me, focus on knowledge, learn and teach. And that's exactly what Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita. So when Krishna says, learn that, tadvidhi pranipatena, by submission, the word pranipata, a little Sanskrit interlude here, the Sanskrit hour. It's, um, it's a very interesting word, pranipata, because it's actually a very visual word, word, which is translated like by submitting to or surrendering to. Pata, pata in Sanskrit means fall, like to fall, like patita pavana, saving the fallen. So pata means a fall, but pra uh, means forward, and ni means down. So the word pranipata actually describes visually the motion of offering obeisances. Because when you bow down, you actually go forward and down. And uh, by the way, you might find this interesting. In the Old Testament, we find that it, that people offered obeisances like in India and not just to God. There are many cases in the Old Testament, I won't go into all the details, but people actually offer obeisances in the Old Testament. So anyway, so, so that physical motion is pranipata. It's actually describing the physical motion. So pranipatena, by submission. Tadvidhi, know that. By submission, pariprasnena, by inquiries. And prasna means a question or inquiry. And pari, we have still in English in the, from the Greek as peri. Same word, peri, peri, like perimeter. And, and meter, of course, is measure from Sanskrit mantra, pari mantra, pari meter. So, so pari prasna means not simply inquiring, but actually inquiring thoroughly, like going around all the points. So you have, so, so it's, it's sort of a way in Sanskrit of saying thorough inquiries, everything you really need to know. So tadvidhi pranipatena pariprasnena sevayan by service. And then upadekshantite jnanam jnaninas. It's such a wonderful, anyway, upadekshanti, as you all know, is the third person, future tense of the say of the verb upadesh, like upadesh amrita. Upadesh means instruction, upadesha, literally like pointing out. And upadekshanti means they will instruct. They will teach. It's in plural. Upadekshanti te, te is they. They will teach or, or they will teach you. Upadekshanti te jnanam jnaninas. And Krishna puts these two words together, jnanam and jnaninas. This is intentional. If you read the Sanskrit of the Gita, you can discover what Krishna is emphasizing by just seeing what order the words are in. So why does Krishna put together these two words, jnanam, jnaninas? Because they will teach you knowledge, knowledge they have. I mean, in other words, people who have knowledge, knowledge will teach. You can't teach what you don't, you can't give what you don't know. So those who have knowledge, knowledge will teach. Upadekshanti te jnanam, jnaninas, 
because they were tattva darshina. Darshina means seers, like the word darshan. And tattva, which we translate truth, seers of the truth, it's a special, there are different words for truth in Sanskrit. For example, the word satya simply means like it's true, it's not false. Like, you know, he told the truth, he's not lying. So satya means the truth. And the word ritam, like Arjuna says to Krishna after seeing the universal form, sarvam etad ritamanye janmang This is all ritta or truth, what you have told me. So, but ritam in Sanskrit means like a cosmic truth, like, 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 a, um, one of the, like a governing truth. One of the truths that explains just the way reality works. And then when you get to the word tattva, which is also translated as truth. Tattva is very interesting because it, it comes from tat, same as in tadvidhi. It's very interesting in that verse, tadvidhi, pranipatena, and then tattva darshina, the first word tat, tadvidhi, and then the last compound word tattva darshina, it's the same tat. And so tattva, tattva means a fundamental category of reality because twa means like the english suffix nest like thatness that is a i explain this a lot of times it's maybe a rerun for some of you but it's like an i love lucy moment so tat is a demonstrative pronoun because it that in other words when you say that you're pointing out a real thing you can't say that about something that doesn't exist and so in, in Sanskritic and Vedic philosophy, they're very astute. So therefore, tat, that, came to mean a real thing, as in om tat sat. Or, and then if you say tatwa, it means the state of being a real thing or a category of real things. That's why we say Vishnu tatwa. It means Vishnu as a category of real existing things, the Vishnu category, the God category. And then there's the jiva category called jiva tattva, and so on. So when Krishna says tattva darshina, seers of the truth, he means those who have understood the fundamental categories of reality. So, for example, if you confuse um, the jiva category with the Vishnu category, that's mayavad, or that's um or simply foolishness, thinking that you're a god. Or if you confuse the jiva with prakriti, it means you identify with your body. Or if you confuse prakriti tattva with Vishnu tattva, then you think Krishna has a material body. So when you've got all this straightened out, categorically, you understand truth categorically, that's called tattva darshi. So now all of us, by the mercy of Prabhupada, are tattva darshi. We actually get it. We understand I'm not God, Krishna's God. And I'm not my body, I'm a spirit soul. Never mind how much I eat, I'm still not my body. Anyway, it's it's con joke there. So so thing is that um, by Prabhupada's grace, we understand tattva. And Krishna says, those who have knowledge will teach. So that means if you actually understand these things, according to Krishna, you are supposed to teach. You are supposed to teach. 
And sometimes devotees say things like, oh, you know, how can I teach? Apply Kant's categorical imperative. You may think you're not so advanced or whatever you think, but the simple question is, if everyone on earth knew as much as you know, would the world be better, worse, or the same? And obviously the world would be infinitely better. If everyone in the world knew what you know, and if everyone in the world sort of, you know, lived their life the way you do, I mean, the environmental problems would be finished, the political military problems would be finished, I mean, the world would be an immeasurably better place if everyone on earth knew what you know. So therefore, uh, taking this verse from Krishna, uh, it's clear that if we understand anything about Krishna consciousness, it is our sacred duty to teach. And if you do, uh, you will get, that's, if you really want to get Krishna's blessings, if that's something that's important to you, if you want to finally get over all your problems, finally come to that state of self-realization where you can have the happiness, the peace, the satisfaction, the great life that you want, Krishna explains how to do it. So let's go to the good book here. Krishna says at the end of the Gita, um, that uh, very powerful verses. In 1868, chapter 18, verse 68, Krishna says, Yai dang paramang guhyang madbhakti shavidhasyati. So literally, literally that means one who will, in the future, this is the future tense, one who will teach paramanguyam, this most confidential knowledge of Bhagavad Gita, one who will teach this among those devoted to me. And the word Krishna uses is madbhakteshu, which means among my bhaktas. But this doesn't simply mean, um, you know, people that have already joined the Hare Krishna movement. Because there are many people, there are hundreds of millions of people in the world who uh, are, very, are open to or even sympathetic to the idea of God. And so, as Krishna says, four kinds of people approach me. They're not all great devotees. Some people are just suffering. Some people you know, want God to send them material rewards uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. Some are just curious, but Krishna says they're all great souls. So if we sort of collate this verse 1868 with what Krishna says about Chaturvita Bhajante Mang, the four kinds of people approach me, it's clear that it's many people on earth fit the category of those who approach me. And so Krishna says, one who will teach, Krishna is talking about us. 5,000 years ago on the battlefield, Krishna was talking about us. And he said, one who will teach this to the pious, those who are devoted, bhakti mai parankritwa, having rendered the highest devotional service. 
having rendered the highest devotional service, Mameva Ishati, which becomes Mameva Ishati, Asangshaya. Sangshaya means doubt. Asangshaya, no doubt. No doubt that person, having rendered the highest devotional service, will come to me alone. In other words, there's no possibility you'll go somewhere else. There's no possibility, oh my God, I you know, joined the Hare Krishna, but how, did, how the hell did I get here? No, Krishna says, you will come to me alone. That's the only possible place you're going. You're going to the highest destination. And then to emphasize it, Krishna says, the next verse, 1869, He says, no one, Kastyan means someone, and Kastyan means no one in Sanskrit. So no one other than that person, no one but that person, Manusheshu, among human beings, is has done, has pleased me the most. I'm trying to translate literally, translate very literally. Priya means like dear pleasure, and priya krit means to give pleasure, literally to make pleasure for someone. Priya krit. And tama means most. That person has pleased me the most. And no one else on earth is the best devotee except that person. And no one, no one will ever be more dear to me than that person. No one will ever be more dear to me than that person. On this earth, no one in the future will ever be more dear to me no one else, actually, Krishna says, no one else will ever be more dear to me than that person. And so, one time I was with Prabhupada, we were walking in Rancho Park in Los Angeles. It's amazing. I always mention this because it's so amazing that um, Prabhupada used to go walk every other day. One day was at Venice Beach, one day was at Rancho Park um, in Los Angeles. Both played. That was the beach that my mother used to take me to when I was a little kid. And then Rancho Park was where I played Little League Baseball and learned to play tennis and everything. So Prabhupada would literally, I'd get in the car with him. I was Somehow I'd always ended up in the car with Prabhupada. And um, we would drive through this really nice neighborhood called Chevy Hills, which is where I grew up. It's where I used to ride my bike and where I used to go to parties when I was a kid and everything, you know. And so I'd sit with Prabhupada in the back of this car, driving through my old neighborhood and thinking, to myself, you've come a long way, baby. Anyway, so I was in the car with Prabhupada, and um, and then we drive to my neighborhood park where I played literally. We, we'd literally walk around my little league baseball diamonds and around the swimming pool and by the tennis courts and everything. It, it was um, it was very interesting. So one time we were walking with Prabhupada in that park, and. I remember Prabhupada, sometimes when he'd be walking, he'd be preaching or talking or challenging us. And sometimes we wanted to really stop, make a point. He'd stop and put his cane down, cane, like he'd put his cane down, really hammer home a point. And so Prabhupada said that, um, he's quoting that verse in the Bhagavad Gita, that Mayai uh, Vaite Nihata Purvameva, chapter 
11, where Krishna tells Arjun, I alone have already killed all these soldiers. Purvameva means already. I've already killed all these people. And then Krishna told Arjuna, Nimitta Matnam, just be the instrument, Baba. Nimitta Matram, Baba, Savya Sachin. Savya Sachin means lefty. Or, you know, Savya means left. So Arjuna could, you know, is ambidextrous. Anyway, so then Prabhupada was talking about this verse. And he said, I remember he was like pleading with us. He said, just as Krishna told Arjuna that he has already won the battle of Kurukshetra, Lord Chaitanya, who's Krishna, has already spread his movement everywhere. But he will give you the credit. You know, the, the victory of this movement has already been done, has already been established. And then Prabhupada was saying to us, why don't you take the credit? If you don't do it, someone else will do it because Krishna's already done it. Lord Chaitanya's already done it. But why don't you take the credit? Why don't you do it? And of course, in those days, we were all very young and Prabhupada said jump, we said how high and so on. But in retrospect, we can see that a Prabhupada's disciples, how many really are working to spread his mission. And so, you know, we may have thought that we we're already doing that because we're all young and we're selling books and this and that. But Prabhupada, who obviously was far, far wiser and more mature than us, was pleading with us to take up Lord Chaitanya's mission. Why don't you be the instrument? So that takes us right to Philadelphia. And uh, great city, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. So, um, so my dream is that hopefully we can, if we all cooperate together, uh, we could do something wonderful for Lord Chaitanya in Philadelphia, which is an important city. 76ers, Phillies. So, um, and we can all do that. And you may know I've started my, my latest nefarious deviation called Krishna West. And so I'll explain to you what that is. Uh, what do they say? Uh, what do they say? They say, um, like they say, spoiler alert. So infomercial alert. The idea of Krishna West is that we should do what Vaishnavas have been doing since the beginning of time. And that is adapting ourselves to the world we live in. For example, sannyasis often wear those very nice little, those handsome dhotis without the tails. And so, you, you know, someone may think that's just eternal Vaishnav culture. Actually, it's not. Actually, it's not. Um, it was adopted by Bhakti Siddhanta not that long ago from the Radha Krishna mission. As you know, Prabhupada was not a big fan of the Radha Krishna mission in Bengal. And, um, but they used those kinds of dhotis and they were popular. So Bhakti Siddhanta adopted it. And then to be fashionable, there was sort of this fashionable Muslim shirt, shirt 
So like, a, which, you know, looked handsome. And so he adopted that. And it's called a kurta. And so this eternal Vedic dress is, you know, roughly 100 years old. So if you look at, if you look at the Bhagavatam and say, because Jiva Goswami, Prabhupada said the great philosopher of our tradition, Jiva Goswami, who wrote, Prabhupada says he's the great philosopher of our tradition, and he wrote one of his books, his Shat Sandarbha, which means six Sandarbhas, called the, the uh, Tatwa Sandarbha, same word Tatwa, which is really his epistemological treatise. It's Jiva Goswami's treatise on what are valid sources of knowledge. What are the valid sources of knowledge? And in there, he says that the highest source of knowledge is the Bhagavatam. So I thought, okay, I'm going to look at the Bhagavatam, see what the Bhagavatam says about dress in particular, and more generally about Vedic culture, as it's often understood. So first of all, according to the Bhagavatam, which Jiva Goswami says is our highest authority, I, as a sannyasi, have two options. One is deerskin, and uh, which you can get, you know, Target, Walmart, anywhere. Sannyasi deerskin. So one is one is deerskin, and the other is uh, basically renounced streaking, because the the other option is not to wear clothes. In fact, they have this funny expression in Sanskrit called what do they call it? Um, uh, dig digni vasa, dig vasa. Uh, which means uh, clothed in the directions, which is a euphemism for saying, you know, all you got is the wind, you know, to cover you. So um, now what's interesting is that even though the Bhagavatam is the highest authority, and the Bhagavatam says to wear deer skin or just streak, um, Lord Chaitanya, who's Krishna himself, and who verified that the Bhagavatam is our authority, forbade his followers to wear deerskin. So how do you make sense of that? Because it's a detail. And in chapter six of the Bhakti Yasamrita Sindhu Nectar Devotion, Rupa Goswami and Prabhupada say, there are basic principles you can't change, and there are details that you have to change to adopt time and place. The Bhagavatam says so many times that, that an advanced devotee is Deshakala Vibhagavit. An advanced devotee knows the distinctions of different times and places, how to adapt. Vaishnavas have always been adapting. The history of the external culture of Vaishnavism is a history of constant adaptation. That's the real history. That's what's actually in our books. And that's what Prabhupada taught. So uh, in fact, the Hare Krishna movement is not presenting to the world an eternal, an eternal ethnic tradition, eternal dress, eternal recipes, e even eternal musical styles. As we know, for the last thousand years, Indian classical music has been under the has been really dominated by Muslim musicians, because when the when the when the uh, Muslims conquered North India. And in those days, uh, you couldn't sell records. You had to have a patron, someone who paid for you to do music. And because the Muslims ruled India, therefore they preferred uh, Muslim musicians. And they took over Indian classical music. So what, what kind of music did they play when, Lord, when Krishna was here? God only knows. For the simple reason that, unlike in the West, starting, let's say, around the Renaissance, 
in India, they didn't write the music down because Indian classical music emphasized uh, uh, impromptu, sort of extemporaneous music. So rather you go to a concert in the West, a classical concert, and they have sheet music and everyone reads the music. And we know exactly what Bach wrote or what Beethoven wrote. And if you know they play it note for note. We can't do that with old Indian music because they didn't write it down. Uh, because they emphasize just improvisation. And if you read the scriptures, what do the scriptures say about music? We know, for example, they had drums. They had, there were the varieties of drums, kettle drums, other kinds of drums. There were we know there were military bands just like in the West with, you know, bugles and trumpets and drums. Uh, there were some stringed instruments, but exactly how they played music, God only knows. Recipes, God only knows. For example, in some of our books, it'll, it'll say like Krishna for, um, says, like when he pierces his Govardhan, you can offer me sweet rice and halava. But the Sanskrit just says um, milk preparations and wheat preparations. And of course, the word halava is a Muslim word. And there's all kinds of, you know, the, all the, you know, the, the preparations that Krishna wants, like the only ones we should offer to the deities. As I always say, it's, a, it's really remarkable how fond Krishna is of Turkish food. Uh, and, for example, like a typical, a typical ISKCON subji would be something like, you know, tomato, potato, chili, none of which existed in India until the Europeans brought it from South America. And so the point I'm trying to make is, if you study the real Vaishnav history, we have basic principles we can't change. My argument is, being sort of uh, polemical by nature, is that if you, because Prabhupada used to say, don't change anything. And then Prabhupada used to say, adjust everything. So that's a paradox. A paradox is something which looks like a contradiction, but on closer study turns out not to be a contradiction. So when Prabhupada said, don't change anything, he was invariably talking about three things that you can never change. Number one, our philosophy. That's not up for reinterpretation. You can't change our philosophy. Number two, our basic spiritual practice, sadhana bhakti. We can't reinvent sadhana bhakti. Prabhupada gave it to us. And we just, you know, we all do as much of it as we can. And then number three is that Prabhupada really, really wanted us to work within his institution. ISKCON is not my institution. It's not the GBC's institution. It's not the guru's institution, it's Prabhupada's institution. And we're just trying to serve him. So those three things, Prabhupada was uncompromising. Work in my mission, do not change the philosophy I gave you, do not change the devotional practice I gave you. As far as other things, external things, dress, cuisine, architecture, et cetera, et cetera, Prabhupada said, adapt. For example, when they were building the, the Krishna Balram temple in Vrindavan, Prabhupada said it should be a mix of Indian and Western architecture so that Western people are comfortable with it. You want to hear another totally non-Vedic, totally Western thing Prabhupada insisted on? Indoor plumbing and flush toilets. Thank God. So 
And why did Prabhupada do that? So Western people would be comfortable. When, um, when, when, they, when ISKCON, the devotees bought the first temple, the first real temple property, which was Los Angeles. They bought it at the end of 69 on Watsika Avenue. And the devotees, you know, as they say, trying to be more Catholic than the Pope, you know, they wanted to redo the architecture and make it a Vedic temple, which is a totally ahistorical notion, by the way. Anyway, they want, and then Prabhupada said no, because it, I think it had been a Methodist church. It was a sort of typical Methodist church architecture. And Prabhupada said, leave it like that, because that way Western people will be comfortable in it. And then the, the next bright idea the devotees had was to move the temple room from where it was. I mean, if you've been to LA Temple, there's a, that temple room, you know, you enter from the street. That had been the church sanctuary. And then there was, there's the other building where the store is and the restaurant. And then in the middle where they have this museum, which kind of works, you know, like kind of once a year on Krishna's birthday. But anyway, so in that museum, which had been sort of the social hall of the church, you know, like in a church, you have the sanctuary, there's a social hall for whatever the churches do in social halls. And so Prabhupada had insisted that the temple be built in the social hall, not in the best building. That's our, our uh, reflex, our instinct. You buy a property, most opulent room, put the deities there. No, Prabhupada said no. Why? Because he wanted to have a sanctuary with the pews. Prabhupada said, leave the seats in the church. He wanted Western people to be comfortable. And on Sunday, Prabhupada, I know, because I was there. On Sunday, Prabhupada would go, not in the temple room where the deities were, you know, the beautiful deities. He would go in the sanctuary. Western people could wear their shoes and sit on pews and be comfortable in Western culture and hear about Krishna. And that church was so, I mean, that temple that built was so sanctuary. Uh, it, was, it was so beautiful. Prabhupada personally designed it. I mean, it was just, it was the most beautiful thing. Prabhupada had them, they put white tiles on the floor, you know, square white tiles on the floor. And then the Vyasasana in the back of the temple room was red velvet with sort of gold wood. And then the altar was... Um, it was a low altar, actually. I mean, the altar was only about like about that high. There were like two steps. It was a low altar with white marble and the deities on it. And there were red velvet curtains. The temple room was painted yellow, a nice yellow color. And the curtains were green satin. And it was the most beautiful temple room. Prabhupada personally designed it. And Prabhupada forbade them to change it. And then... And the leader in LA who did not spiritually survive his creative impulses, when Prabhupada was gone, a year or two later, he did change it. He ripped out the pews that Prabhupada wanted. He moved the deities against Prabhupada's order. And eventually he fell down, sort of in a very grotesque way. But the point is that whether it's Vrindavan, Los Angeles, Prabhupada was trying to make Western people feel comfortable with this movement. And Krishna himself says, it's not about rituals. It's about knowledge. It's about teaching people and making them feel comfortable. 
One time Prabhupada was in New Vrindavan and they gave him some maple syrup. Prabhupada ate it and, they, and someone said, but Prabhupada, isn't that sap from a tree you're not supposed to eat? Prabhupada said, yes, but it's very tasteful. So Prabhupada's order to us, somehow or other, Rupa Goswami said this, yena kena prakarena, mano krishnaini veshaye, somehow or other, by this or that means, jena prakara means like the means to do something, jena kena, by whatever, by whatever means, jena kena prakarena, mano krishnaini veshaye, one should learn how to help people put their minds in Krishna. So it's fair to say that almost all the successful Western preaching programs in this country right now, uh, although they may not be using our brand, Krishna West, which is all right, probably trying to avoid the franchise fee. But anyway, they, um, it's, it's this Western preaching. Prabhupada said to me personally, we were in Hawaii. We were in Hawaii and uh, with Prabhupada in 1974. And one of his dear disciples, uh, Sudama Brahmana. Actually, there were two leaders of ISKCON that came from my neighborhood. They actually went to my high school with me. One of them was Sudama Brahmana. The other one is still active. It's uh, Mahatma Prabhu. He's from my neighborhood. In fact, I preached him to join the Hare Krishna movement. So, um, so Sudama had had been president of Honolulu and then he left, he just sort of went away, which in those days was shocking. In those days, if you didn't live in a temple, you were basically an atheist. So it was different. We were a little um, immature. So anyway, Sudama had left. And um, so then Prabhupada came to Hawaii and he was very, he was very unhappy because Prabhupada really loved his disciples like his own spiritual children. So Prabhupada was unhappy and uh, he, I mean, we were driving in a car. I think we were on the way to the morning walk in Waikiki. And Prabhupada was asking the leaders there, and I was in the car, you know, why did he go away? And the leaders were sort of giving different reasons. And he said, well, you know, he didn't want to always dress in these Indian clothes. And he was a sannyasi. And uh, Prabhupada said, I never said you have to wear these clothes. So Prabhupada said, in the Veda base, where someone asked Prabhupada, why do we dress like this Indian clothes? Prabhupada said, I never said you had to do it. You wanted to do it. So my point is, Prabhupada came to America not to rip the pants off, you know, American men and, you know, get everyone to become ethnically a village Indian, because even Indians now, they don't wear this clothes very much. So... Prabhupada came, he said, he was looking for us. He was trying to find Western people who would believe him, who would understand him, who would take up his mission and then figure out a way to get other people in our country to accept it. In fact, if you look at well, Mukunda Goswami's book, it's, it's a great book, Miracle on Second Avenue or something like that. A wonderful book. And so what I really found striking about Mukunda's book 
is that um, the relationship between Prabhupada and his devotees, in the sense that he knew all of them, they all knew him, it was a very personal relationship, and Prabhupada really depended on his Western disciples to figure out what to do. They told Prabhupada, we should get a place in this neighborhood. They told Prabhupada, we should chant in this park. They told Prabhupada, things are happening in California. We should go out to San Francisco, you know, in LA, and because that's where things are happening. And so what happened? I mean, what happened to change that? For one thing, in 1970, Prabhupada, some of his, you know, most senior disciples rebelled against him, which really broke his heart. Um, the movement grew so fast that the movement grows, so, you know, the Hare Krishna explosion. But, you know, when there are explosions, good things happen. There are some unintended consequences of explosions. So one of the un unintended consequences of the Hare Krishna explosion was that the movement went in just a couple of years from a society in which everyone knew Prabhupada and he knew everyone to a movement in which, to a movement which most of the members of ISKCON had never in their lives had a conversation with Prabhupada. And Prabhupada had never been introduced to them personally. And so, you know, if you study the sociology of religion, the history of religions, like what happens psychologically, what happens sociologically? And so, um, let me just tell someone one thing so, so they don't keep. Uh, so, um, Prabhupada admitted, I mean, I know Lakshmi Moni uh, told me and other people that once she met, after Prabhupada had gone, she met this family in Calcutta. This family had been personal friends of Prabhupada for generations. You know, they were old family friends of Prabhupada. And they said that when Prabhupada came to Calcutta, he was confiding in them in Bengali that um, the movement grew so fast, he never expected. It's almost like, I mean, if you'll forgive this somewhat mundane example, but there are, you know, innumerable mundane analogies in our philosophy. It's kind of the Beatles. You know, there was, there was this guy, these guys just trying to earn enough money to feed themselves in Hamburg. And they went back to England. They were just trying to get someone to make a record for them. And then suddenly, in just like a year or so, or a year or two, they were the Beatles. And they just, you know, they couldn't figure out what happened. They thought we're just some pop musicians, you know, trying to do English versions of uh, Johnny Be Good or something. So... So Prabhupada, you have to understand that when Prabhupada came to America, and up, up until the time the movement started to grow, Prabhupada had already spent over 70 years of his life with nothing really happening. If you're 70 years old, 71, if you're 71, 72 years old, and nothing's ever really happened, you know, you joined your guru's movement. Your guru did great things, Bhakti Siddhanta, but you were a householder. And so, you know, you work, give donations to the temple, give classes. Prabhupada told me he was a member of the temple board in, uh, uh, what is it called, um, Allahabad. 
He was a member of the temple boards. He was one of the senior, you know, respectful people. He would give classes sometimes, try to give donations. And that was his life. He was just, a, you know, Abai Prabhu in Allahabad. And then Prabhupada, uh, you know, thought as he was getting older and he realized, I can't stay in family life. It's really not working for me. And so then he tried to do something in Jansi. What happens? Uh, some lady comes and takes his property away and he's back to square one. You know, go back to go, do not collect $200. Then he goes to Delhi and he prints up this little sheet, which he calls back to Godhead. He, he has to personally go out and try to, you know, sell his little sheet. And what happens? He gets heat stroke and collapses. He gets gored by a bull. So he's not even physically surviving this. And then someone says to him, and, you know, we're talking about Prabhupada already well into his 60s. Then someone says, hey, uh, you know, Swamiji, instead of giving this sheet out, why don't you write a book? People take books more seriously. Okay, so he goes to Vrindavan, pays what today would be like, maybe like a nickel or something a day, and uh, gets a room in the Radha Damodar temple for almost nothing, and decides I'll translate the Bhagavatam. So somehow or other miraculously finishes the translation, gets it printed, but no, and, and he, he tries. He didn't immediately go to America. There's pictures of Prabhupada giving his Bhagavatam to, um, what was his name? He was the prime minister of India at the time. I forget his name, the one who was kind of assassinated by the Russians in a plane crash. Anyway, uh, he gets his picture taken, giving the Bhagavatam to this person or that person, but no one's really that interested. It's like everyone supports him and no one's really interested. It's kind of like being a sannyasi in America. So anyway, so, so that was kind of the situation. And so he thought, we'll go to America. Then he has to find a way to get, it's funny, he didn't ask for a plane ticket. I mean, they, they actually, they, they did, well, let's see, I took my first commercial flight in 1965. So commercial aviation was just starting it. And that was like, I was the, probably the first one in my family maybe to get on an airplane, a jet, at least a commercial jet. And that was in 65. So, um, so Prabhupada gets on the boat, heart attacks, gets to Butler, Pennsylvania. And it's interesting, if you, if you sort of read between the lines, if, if, you, if you look at what's really happening, when Prabhupada's in Butler, it's not at all obvious that he's going to go anywhere else. He thinks, you know, I'm in America. It's a big deal. I'm in America. I mean, if Prabhupada went to Jansi, Butler's kind of like Jansi. So Prabhupada's in Butler, Pennsylvania. He's giving little talks here and there in the YMCA. Or, and, you know, at a certain point when he sort of gets acclimated in America, he realizes, you know, the great, the glorious world revolution is probably not going to begin in Butler, Pennsylvania. With all due respect to Butler, Pennsylvania, I have a disciple from Butler, Pennsylvania. So, then Prabhupada goes to New York. What happens? You know, he gets some cheap little place. You know, he has to share a room with someone who goes crazy on drugs, throws everything he owns out the window. You know, almost attacks him violently. And so at this point, at this point, if you're Prabhupada, you know, you're kind of like, I don't know, the Beatles in Hamburg. It's just, I mean, nothing's really happening. 
I remember I read one time this in this little, I was in a bookstore and I just had this biography, you know, the authorized biography of the Beatles. And I just looked at a few pages. And when they first started the Cavern Club in, um, you know, oh my God, uh, the city they're from, Liverpool. When they used to play in the Cavern Club, they were so bad at that point that one time they were playing on the stage and the owner of the club actually closed the curtains while they were playing. Because he thought, this is, get out of here, you guys. So anyway, so nothing is happening for Prabhupada. And then we know he runs into, you know, uh, a person that became Hayagriva and Kirtananda. He starts giving classes on Second Avenue. And that's nice, but, you know, it, it's like it's in the air, sort of like it's sort of like, you know, they had the Arab Spring. This is kind of the Indian Spring where everyone's into yoga and gurus and everything. And Prabhupada just starts to ride that wave. I mean, he didn't create the wave. He's riding the wave. So at that point, what I mean to say is even all the way up to 26 Second Avenue and then, he, you know, Prabhupada loses his visa, has to go to Montreal to renew his American visa. At that point, Prabhupada, the way he described it, we have like a little foothold, like a little foothold. Nothing big is happening. There's nothing like Digvijay, world conquering. There's nothing like a big Hare Krishna movement. He just has some nice young American boys and girls in Manhattan that he's trying to kind of, you know, get to sober up. And then... So then you fast forward that literally just two or three years after, you know, Prabhupada spent the first 72 years of his life where nothing really ever happens. And he's already in his seventies. And suddenly the movement just explodes. And suddenly he's like, you know, he has thousands of followers and, he, and, and he's an international celebrity. And, and, and if you look really closely at how Prabhupada used to speak, he was himself thinking, oh, my God. I mean, Prabhupada was, was probably more amazed than anyone else that all this was happening. So what I mean to say is that, let me put it this way, just as there are, Krishna always seems to have three stages in his pastimes. You find this in Krishna Lila, you find the exact same thing in Chaitanya Lila. So we'll start with we'll start with Chaitanya Lila because you actually they get these names like you know first, second, and third. And that is Adi Lila means first Lila, and then Madhya Lila, middle Lila, and then Antya Lila, final Lila. So it's just you know beginning, middle, and final. And if you look at the nature of those three Lilas, they're all very distinct because Adi Lila is very intimate, it's like hometown boy makes good. It's Lord Chaitanya Navadvi. He's with his family, his wife. He's with his friends. He knows everybody. You know, he's like he's like the hometown kid. He's a local hero. And it's very intimate. And this exactly corresponds to Krishna Vrindavan. You know, he's the darling of his little town. So Krishna Vrindavan is Krishna's Adi Lila. Just like Chaitanya. Then Lord Chaitanya goes out and starts to travel, right? He takes sannyas and he travels. Why? Because he is rewriting history. Even though Lord Chaitanya's pastimes in Navadweep are so intimate and relishable, 
He's not changing the world. I mean, no one outside Navadweep cares very much what's going on in Navadweep. And so Lord Chaitanya starts to travel around India, and then he starts to actually change the country. Similarly, when Krishna leaves Vrindavan, even though his Vrindavan Leela is most relishable, but it doesn't change the world. It, it has no effect on the world. Except sort of like reducing the population of demons sent by Kansa. But it really, there's, there's almost no effect on the world. But then when Krishna leaves Vrindavan, he kills Kansa, which is a major geopolitical event. Killing Kansa changed the balance of world power. Nothing Krishna did in Vrindavan had that kind of effect. And then Krishna starts to kill demons. He kills all kinds of demons. Krishna is intervening dramatically in global history. And that's Krishna's Madhyalila. Just like Lord Chaitanya's Madhyalila is to travel and preach and personally change the world. And then when you get um, Lord Chaitanya's Antyalila, he actually retires from directly preaching and lets his devotees preach. Ditto for Krishna Lila. Because the Bhagavatam ends at the 10th canto. I mean, what do you say? Krishna Lila. I mean, in, in the 11th canto, you get the destruction of the Aru dynasty and then Krishna's disappearance. But most of Krishna's pastimes, almost all Krishna's personal pastimes end at the end of the 10th canto. But what's interesting, if you compare the Bhagavatam timeline with the Mahabharata, when Krishna retires, because the 10th canto ends there, precisely because that's when Krishna retires from personally killing demons and personally changing history. Just like Lord Chaitanya retired from personally traveling and preaching. And we, and the way, and, and, but at that point, the Mahabharata is just really getting going. I'll explain to you. Draupadi was insulted in the gambling hall of the, of the Kurus, the Duty Sabha, the, which means the gambling hall. So later when she complained to Krishna, why weren't you there for me? What does Krishna say? He said, I couldn't come because the powerful Shalva in his airplane, the original Asura Air Force, Powerful Shalva attacked Dwarka, and I had to defend Dwarka. Now, what's interesting is that Krishna killing Dwarka, uh, Krishna killing Shalva, and then killing Shalva's friends, that's the end of the 10th canto. There is a little wrap-up after that. But that's, you know, Bidurata and his brother, I forget his name. So that's the end of the 10th canto. But if you look at the Mahabharata, that's just beginning. Because after Draupadi was insulted in that duty, the gambling, then uh, they, the Kurus realized it was so impious that they're going to get terrible reactions. So Dhritarashtra called the Pandavas back for the Anu duty, which means the second gambling follow-up. Anu means like the follow-up gambling match, in which there was no, like, nasty garbage stuff like insulting Draupadi. And they just gamble, winner take all. And of course, uh, Makura's won. And so in other words, Krishna Leela, in which Krishna is personally doing things, is ending 
at the time the Pandavas are going out in exile. And so in the Mahabharata, you have those 12 years of exile, then one year incognito, then the Battle of Kurukshetra. So, so the Bhagavatam is focusing on what Krishna did. And then Krishna sort of hands the baton to his devotees, the Pandavas and others, and that's the Mahabharata. So similarly in Chaitanya Leela, the Madhya Leela ends when Lord Chaitanya stops personally traveling and preaching and then hands over the duty to his devotees. And he just stays in Puri, relishing very intimate ecstasies of Radha and Krishna. So now here's how it comes to ISKCON. I explained all that because if you apply that same pattern to um, ISKCON, I believe you can, you can find these same three stages. Because the Adi Leela or the Brindavan Leela of ISKCON, I would argue, is the early days of ISKCON. It's just like Lord Chaitanya Navadweep. It's just like Krishna Vrindavan. Everyone knows Prabhupada. Prabhupada knows everyone. It's exactly like a spiritual family, very intimate. You know, women are not seen as less than men. You don't have this sort of like, I don't know, dizzying hierarchy where you have leaders that tell everybody else what to do. Everyone else is kind of like shut up and obey. There's none of that. It's not like that. Everyone's just friends. When I joined the Berkeley Temple in 1969, uh, we had no idea that women were less than men. No one, I mean, that was, no one thought that. And, uh, and everyone was, it was like a family. You know, women weren't Maya. And, and, and also this nonsense of like Prabhu and Mataji. I published a document, which is on my website, and actually free to you. You don't have to register in PayPal to read that. And I proved that in Vedic literature, including the Vedas, men do not call women mother. It's not Vedic. It's not in Shastra. I mean, sometimes like a man will call his aunt mother or something like that. But in general, they call women by their name or by flattering epithets like badre, which means something like good woman, or shube, fine lady. And also, Prabhupada did not call women Mataji. And uh, in fact, Prabhupada, I have a whole list. I'm going to publish it. I actually got to see what I do with it. Nandalila, Nandalila, remind me to do that. Where did Nandalila go? You can't disappear. You can't get away that easy. Yeah, remind me. Because I, there's all these quotes where Prabhupada calls his own women disciples Prabhu. Prabhupada calls his own disciples of women Prabhu. So it's all this stuff that came in. And so in, in my mind, that ecstatic time, I caught the tail end of it. I joined in 69. And I definitely caught, you know, I, I caught the last phase of that. And to me, that is the ISKCON that Western people will join. It's the Brindavan, it's the ecstatic Brindavan ISKCON, where it's a family, people are friends. We don't have misogyny. We don't have all this stuff. It's just, it's just you know, a happy family of people serving together, 
Leaders aren't lording it over followers. I had to spend hours a day uh, helping a uh, you know, wonderful young lady. I know her, her, her older sister also devotees, and I spoke more often. She was in, not in America, another country, and she was kind of like done because she'd been in a temple and was just like a, at the breaking point. And so, um, you know, but now she's apparently enthusiastic again. So I think, you know, she's saved by Krishna's mercy, but that's the ISKCON that Western people will join. Not the, the ISKCON where, you know, some people lord it over other people in the name of Vedic culture because they have this or that position. Not the, the you know, the misogynistic ISKCON, but the ISKCON where people actually see each other as spirit souls. It's a happy family. And, uh, you know, we just have a good time together saving the planet. And everyone gets to be Tom Cruise or uh, what's her name? One who's married to, um, she always plays these action figures. Anyway, I guess now it would be that Scarlet's and or something. I can't remember her name. Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. In other words, in Krishna West, everyone gets to be a mutant. Everyone gets to be an Avenger. So anyway, so, so that is Iskand. And then, and, and to me, Madhya Leela of Iskan. Iskand's Madhya which corresponds to Lord Chaitanya traveling and preaching, and uh, or Krishna going out and personally killing demons, is Prabhupada traveling around the world and preaching. But if you look at Krishna, I mean, even Krishna took on a different mood when he went out to do that. And we know because, I mean, we have it from the authority of the gopis. Because the gopis say, now that Krishna left Vrindavan, and now that he's living in a city, and he's acting as a prince, He's going to have a different taste in girls. You know, it's like, how are you going to get him to hang out with the village girls after he's seen Paris? So it's like, it's kind of like that. Krishna himself takes on this role of a prince. And it's more like this Dasya Rasa. And he's ordering people. And of course, he has friends like the Pandavas. And he's, he's, he's not with these village girls, you know, dancing in the moonlight. He has these palaces and he marries queens. By the way, Krishna was monogamous, I should point out, because all the 16,108 queens have their own Krishna. So Krishna was actually monogamous 16,108 times. It's just like it's just like Krishna's in our heart. Krishna's in our heart, and in your heart, Krishna is there only for you. In your heart. Krishna is not there for anyone else but you. So anyway, so we have that Madhya Leela, Lord Chaitanya personally preaching, Krishna personally killing demons, Prabhupada going down and saving the world. And then now we're in the Anti Leela, you could say, or at least Prabhupada. I mean, at the end, Prabhupada was sick. He was in Vrindavan. He couldn't travel. So where are we now? Where is this con now? My point is that I think it's just like, for example, historically, we know that it was Krishna and Vrindavan that ultimately captivated and dominated Indian culture. We know that because if you study all the different forms of cultural expression, literature, uh, theater, uh, sculpture, painting, music, if you look at all the forms of cultural expression in India for thousands of years, we see very clearly that it's Krishna and Vrindavan that totally captured everyone's attention. 
And there was very little cultural expression about Krishna out of Vrindavan as Dwarkadish. I mean, obviously in Gujarat, that's the big thing because he's, you know, but. And so my point is, I believe it's the Vrindavan Iskon, intimate, family, not these like, uh, you know, sort of uh, oppressive hierarchies. Just a family, people having a good time together and, you know, sort of almost like the ISKCON we try to pretend we are in all the movies, you know, ISKCON makes. So, so, you know, if we could actually do that, if we could actually do that, I think, I think we can change the world. We can save the world, especially America. Prabhupada emphasized that. He always wanted us to save America. So that's Krishna West. It's Prabhupada's movement. It's um, same philosophy, same practice, same Prabhupada. But it's taking, and maybe just to end my little spiel here before I start signing you up and getting you to make uh, commitments that you can't possibly keep and tomorrow will hate me for having pressured you into making. Um, I would just like to read something from one purport from Prabhupada. Um, and why not? I mean, why not, why not Philadelphia? One time I was with Prabhupada in Mayapur and Saruk Damodar uh, came. I was Prabhupada Satan. We were on the balcony there. And Saruk Damodar came to see Prabhupada. And of course, he's from Manipur. He was from Manipur. And basically he came, he came to tell Prabhupada all the good news about Manipur that they were making devotees and that he was saying that in Manipur, there's still a very strong Vaishnav culture. And many people even go to the Mongol Arati at whatever, you know, local Mandir. And so he was, he was telling Prabhupada, Prabhupada, we can make Manipur the first, you know, Hare Krishna state. And so Prabhupada's response is very interesting. He's probably said, he said, yes, the time is coming when we have to establish Krishna consciousness powerfully somewhere. And then he said, and it doesn't matter where. So he agreed with Srupadamadar, he said, but it doesn't matter. Why not Philadelphia? You know, dream big. So, uh, so in, in his purport to 4854, um, Narada Muni is instructing is instructing Dhruva how to worship Krishna. Because, you know, Narada first tested him and said, come on, kid, go home, you're five years old. I mean, you know, go play with your friends or something. And, then, and that's when Dhruva said, as Prabhupada explains, you know, he said to Narada, well, if you can tell me how to get my kingdom back, I'm ready to serve you. Otherwise, perhaps you should go home. So, so Narada said, okay, the boy's serious. Then he spoke this verse to him. And he said, uh, that an intelligent person should worship the Lord with paraphernalia, chanting this mantra, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. And he should worship the Lord, Desha Kalavi Bhagavit. This is the key. Desha means place or country. Kala is time. And Vibhaga means differences, categories, differences. Vit, knowing, knowing the differences of time and place. And this same term was used to describe Bhishma. He knew the differences of time and place. And so Prabhupada, in his purport, 
he's talking about this. What does it mean to know the differences of time and place? So I'm going to read you what Prabhupada says about it. He says, the method of worship, chanting the mantra, you know, worshiping Krishna, chanting the mantra, and preparing the forms of the Lord is not stereotyped. Is not stereotyped. Nor is it exactly the same everywhere. And I forgot to get in the case of Sudama, when, when he heard that Sudama left because he had he didn't want to wear Indian clothes, Prabhupada said, you know, I never said you had to do that. You don't wear Indian clothes. The same thing he told Allen Ginsberg. So it is specifically mentioned in this verse. Listen very carefully. These words are really powerful and are very widely misunderstood in the Hare Krishna movement. I mean, more and more people now understand it, but still a lot of people, a lot of leaders misunderstand this. I mean, I'm sure they're very sincere souls. I'm sure they'll go back to God and they just don't exactly understand this. So it is specifically mentioned in this verse that one should take consideration of the time, place, and available conveniences. Our Krishna consciousness movement is going on throughout the entire world. And we also install deities in different centers. Now listen to this. Here's the kicker. Sometimes our Indian friends, in the worst, uh, or the white Hindus, sometimes our Indian friends puffed up with concocted notions, puffed up with concocted notions, criticized. This has not been done. That has not been done. But they forget this instruction of Narada Muni to one of the greatest Vaishnavas, Dhruva Maharaj. One has to consider the particular time, country, and conveniences. What is convenient in India may not be convenient in the Western countries. Those who are not actually in the line of acharyas or who personally have no knowledge of how to act in the role of acharya unnecessarily criticize the activities of the ISKCON movement in countries outside of India. The fact is that such critics cannot do anything personally to spread Krishna consciousness. If someone does go and preach, taking all risks and allowing all considerations for time and place, allowing all considerations for time and place, it might be that there are changes in the manner of worship, but that is not at all faulty according to Shastra. So what we see right now is that the movement is booming. It's off the charts in India. It's doing very well with the Indian diaspora. And among Western people, it is um, it's going nowhere. I mean, there are there are some really good programs in Portland, in New York, in uh, in Gainesville. I mean, other places. This is not an exhaustive list. I just did a program with Delaware. I mean, there are some very nice programs. So, I mean, and there are lots of really excellent devotees in this country, for example. There are many excellent Western devotees and they're doing very nice programs and I want to give them all credit. However, unfortunately, despite the fact these are very good devotees doing very good programs, when you add it all up, it just doesn't add up to a movement that really matters in this country. 
a movement that is relevant, that has a national voice, a movement that really is on the way to changing history. And if someone disagrees, we must live in parallel universes. So therefore, um, therefore, like Philadelphia, Prabhupada says all considerations for time and place. There's absolutely no question that Western people feel more comfortable when most of them, not all of them, but most of them, when they don't have to adopt an exotic lifestyle in order to save their soul. And the exotic lifestyle that ISKCON often pushes on people actually is not beta culture anyway. In fact, if I can uh, reveal the truth here, you know, one of the main things that we always say is Vedic culture, right? We always say Vedic culture. Guess what? The term Vedic culture is not in the Vedas. There are some Sanskrit words that you can translate directly into English, and it literally means the same thing. One example is Prakriti, which means nature. Prakriti is exactly the English word nature. Just like you can say nature like the birds and bees, or you can say nature in the sense of like my nature, what's like, you know, your nature. And it's exactly the same in Sanskrit. Or for example, Ishwara means Lord, or Deva means God, or, or Karma means action. There's all kinds of words that there's a very simple, direct translation from Sanskrit to English. There is no Sanskrit term found in Shastra that literally means Vedic culture. So, um, what does this mean? For one thing, Prabhupada used the term Vedic culture. So therefore, I don't reject the term because Prabhupada used it. But here is a logical principle. If you choose to use in English a term which is not directly found in Shastra, then you must give to that term a definition which is found in Shastra. So if you define the term Vedic culture in a way that is found in Shastra, then you can use it. You say, well, when I say Vedic culture, I mean such and such, and that's in Shastra. If you use the word Vedic culture to mean like women wearing cholis or, you know, men wearing dhotis or cooking certain kinds of subjis or playing certain musical instruments or certain kinds of architecture, if then there's no such thing in Vedic culture. I mean, then you're using the word Vedic culture in a way which has no basis in Shastra. And as Prabhupada emphasized, we follow Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra, and the main, Prabhupada said, the central authority is Shastra. If you want to say, well, what is legitimately Vedic culture? Vedic culture legitimately would be, for example, Varnashram. Varnashram is all over the Vedas. I mean, it's everywhere. So Varnashram is definitely Vedic. Uh, the fact that Krishna Bhakti is the perfection of Vedic culture, that's also there. It's right there in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna says it himself many times. So basically, if you understand Varnashram culture devoted to Krishna, where the goal of everything is loving Krishna, that is Vedic culture. Anything 
which is ethnic, which involves clothes, recipes, architectural styles, musical styles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's really no such thing as Vedic culture. And I don't find any evidence in Shastra that the great souls could care less about how you dress if you dress decently. Krishna does give a criteria for external culture, by the way, but it's not ethnic. It's qualitative. It's the mode of goodness. So if you dress in a way which is respectful, which doesn't accentuate, inappropriately accentuate certain parts of the body, and I'm referring to, you know, men's dress or women's dress, then it, it's, you know, it's clean. If it's clean, it's comfortable, it's appropriate for the weather. It doesn't, you know, inappropriately present your body to, to other people. And that's the mode of goodness. You know, whether it's a pair of pants or a dhoti or a skirt or a dress or whatever it is. So Krishna teaches these cultural principles, not ethnic details. The problem is that many devotees, God love them, do not understand the difference between cultural principles and ethnic details. And so therefore they're trying to force on the world ethnic details instead of cultural principles. For example, when I was a kid, my mother taught me that when you go to the house of God, I was born in a Jewish family, so we, we went to a synagogue. And I learned as a child, when you go to a house of God, even if it's, it, it could be a church, it could be a synagogue, whatever it is, when you go to a house of God, you show respect. You show respect. Don't be a jerk. You know, if you're going to a house of God, be respectful. So anyway, so why not Philadelphia? I mean, so my proposal to all of you is, why don't we all work together? Everyone put in their little bit and try to build a powerful mission for Prabhupada in Philadelphia. Any questions about all these points? I've been berating you for some time now, so I'll give you a chance to ask questions, if you have any, unless you've already had enough, can't take any more. <laughs> uh, if you have a question, please just maybe you can unmute yourself and uh, ask your question. There's not that many of us. All right, Bo Maharaj, this is Davy Deva. Oh, where are you? I'm in Philadelphia. Oh, can I see you? Are you, you is your camera on? Uh, sort of. I'm in a back office on the third floor of my house, but oh. I don't really I usually do these from my office. But um, I obviously, you know what you're talking about, and obviously it's very powerful knowledge. Um, and I've been thinking this way since the early 80s. Uh, and uh, as I told Tamal, when he tried to get me to be on the GBC, that I don't even own a Dodi. Uh, so uh, I, you know, I, I sort of get the whole cultural and I sort of joined in that family spirit. Um, but the problem that I've had within the society, uh, I have many, many uh, like-minded God brothers, uh, but the implementation process of this kind of revolution 
within our society. Um, you know, they're very attached to the Indian Hinduization of the society uh, because it provides finances. And uh, it also is a easy way to, uh, you know, sustain and feel some self-esteem that you're a religious person. And, you know, there's some psychological uh, stroking there. So how do you, I mean, I would love to join with you and do a revolution in Philadelphia. I think there's lots of people in the background um, that are willing to do that. But how, uh, how do you take on the sort of juggernaut of, you know, the ISKCON hierarchy and the well-entrenched uh, ritualistic approach to ISKCON in 2022? Okay, um, great question. And I think I have an answer. Thank you very much. Thank you for attending and thank you for asking your question. And, uh, oh, who's that? Uh, Brindavaneshwari, their hand. Okay, next, you can be next. So, um, thank, we should all be very grateful to Prabhupada that he built a movement in which we have all the freedom we need to do what we need to do. So um, we don't have to worry about the long arm of the law. You know, ISKCON, as long as we really just, you know, behave like ladies and gentlemen, we can do whatever we want if we're within Prabhupada's principles. I wanna to read to you to confirm this, a very powerful statement from Prabhupada, which really expresses the freedom that we have the freedom that we have. Uh, this was in a letter to Karunder, uh from Bombay, uh, 22nd December, 72. The Krishna consciousness movement is for, in other words, its purpose, training men, he meant devotees, to be independently thoughtful, independently thoughtful and competent in all, times of, in all types of departments of knowledge and action, not for making bureaucracy, once there is bureaucracy, the whole thing will be spoiled. And this is what Prabhupada means by bureaucracy. There must be always individual striving and work and responsibility, competitive spirit, not that one shall dominate and distribute benefits to the others and they do nothing but beg from you and you provide. No. So I think, uh, David, David, what you were saying, I think that many of us, many devotees have, you know what a phantom limb is, right? like someone loses a limb, but it still itches and hurts and all that. So I think that we're kind of under the onus of this phantom oligarchy in the sense that, you know, when we were younger, uh, ISKCON was kind of top heavy and the you know leaders, you couldn't do anything unless you were authorized and blah, blah, blah. So the fact is now that there is no such suffocating bureaucracy. I mean, we should be ladies and gentlemen. We should follow the general rules of ISKCON, which I don't find oppressive. There's no rule in ISKCON that says that we can't start a preaching program. There's no rule in ISKCON that says that program has to be under the local temple in Mount Airy. There's no rule in ISKCON, there's no law that says that we can't just go out and save Philadelphia and the outlying areas. 
There's no, and ISKCON Prabhupada said repeatedly, ISKCON is a constitutional society. And so there, I wrote a whole essay on this, where I show going back to, you know, John Locke and the, and then the, the enlightenment thinkers. And, you know, so the idea that as a citizen, the government has to justify uh, limiting or curtailing your natural freedom. So if we, in other words, we are free in ISKCON to preach as we like, and whatever authorities there are, have a legitimate right to regulate us only to the extent that it's absolutely necessary for the general well-being of the movement. So if we develop a preaching program in Philadelphia and we're making lots and lots of devotees and spreading the glories of Krishna, and we're not bothering other people, we're not stealing people from other programs, we're not, you know, we're just doing our work, then we have full constitutional authority within the laws of ISKCON to proceed and to expand as much as we want. We can get thousands of people, we can spread all over Pennsylvania, Kentucky, you know, everywhere. We have, Prabhupada has given us full freedom to save this country. And we can do it absolutely within the laws of ISKCON. I, I understand that, Maharaj, but the reality is that <clears throat> many people have joined ISKCON. They've been longtime members of ISKCON and the bureaucracy or the hierarchy controls all the assets and all the capital. We don't need we don't we don't need their assets and capital. For example, I assume that if any of you is presently homeless, uh, my sympathy and I'm not speaking to you. But for those who aren't, or even if you are homeless, even if you sleep in a park, I mean, every one of we don't need assets to invite people to here to come to a class that we give, to invite people to invite their friends. We can meet. I mean, I mean, what do we need? What assets do we need? If if you're nice would to be, well, let's let's practically roll it out. Okay. Would you, would you invite them to renting a hall like we used to do in Russia because we didn't have a temple? Uh, or, well, that was Russia. There were so many people. I'm not sure we need a hall right now. No, but I mean, you we would just rent a hall, and we did not. Yeah, I would say if if let's say Krishna really blesses us. And we get to the point where we need a hall. I mean, imagine that. I imagine how fantastic that would be. Let's say we're in Philadelphia and we need a hall because, because all of our friends don't fit in anybody's house. So if we came to that happy problem, I'm sure everyone would chip in their dime and we'd rent a hall. All right. And so how would you deal with the sort of psychological and sociological, uh, you know, partition of of such a com long-standing community. And uh, why not educate all the people that are already working in Philadelphia into a more uh, Western, you know, society at large? As okay, well. I'll explain that. First of all, uh, first of all, I don't think the partition, you know, of course, you know, partition, I, I might not use that word. Um, Prabhupada advocates powerfully here that people do their own programs. And um, I don't see how, how it's intrinsically evil to do a Western program. As far as, you know, we respect other devotees that do things other ways. As far as trying to work with the, you know, the programs already there, I tried that. I was the GBC in Atlanta. 
I was the GBC in Atlanta. I'm a sannyasi. I'm a guru. I've got all the titles. And I was and I was the GBC in Atlanta. I tried to get it more into a Western program. It was, it was very, it was impossible. It was very difficult. Well, so why I, I don't, I think, I think there are fundamental cultural differences. I think there are fundamental cultural differences, which are not bad. And people have a right to have their own culture in Krishna consciousness. It's not that someone's good and someone's bad or someone's right and someone's wrong. And so based on my personal experience, based on the fact that almost all of the successful Western preaching programs in this country are doing what I'm suggesting and not doing the thing where you just kind of like, you know, work with your local uh, Hare Krishna temple. They tried that in Los Angeles. And they, it was just complete frustration. They tried it for years. Finally, they went and did got their own place in a different area, and in uh, their program boomed. And no, I understand. So it's it's in in one sense real uh, world. It's the real world. Yeah, I, I I'm in agreement with you, um, and uh, I I don't think they get it. And I guess it's just like in a family. There's two brothers, and they each have different. Uh, perspectives on uh, things and- uh, Well, my, my brothers didn't get it when I joined the Hare Krishna movement, but I still joined. I mean, if we have to do something to save Prabhupada's mission, if we have to do something in order to give Prabhupada what he so desperately needs, I'm gonna do it. And if someone doesn't like it, I say, you know, eat shop, Lord Chaitanya's favorite vegetable. So, you know, we just have to do what Prabhupada needs us to do. And, and I get that, but I have one question. Yes. And you tried it, and I know a number of others have tried it. But in theory, uh, would it, it would be better if, if the local temple and the sort of progressive wing of the party uh, worked together and did a sort of side-by-side -side thing. Uh, I, don't, I don't agree. I don't agree. I think that's exactly the opposite of what Prabhupada is saying. For, let me give you one example. In Atlanta, Atlanta, because of the way it was founded and everything, there are a lot of Methodist churches in Atlanta. It's a very Methodist city. And of course, it has everything. It's a huge city, but it's a lot of Methodist churches. You will find Methodist, there's a, there's a beautiful Methodist church, for example, on the, cam, on the campus of Emory University, which is like a very prestigious private university. You'll find... Methodist churches, middle-class neighborhoods, upper-class neighborhoods, black, white, uh, you know, you name it. And so they all hang together. It's the Methodist church. They cooperate together. They, you know, they're a church. But the point is each church in its own neighborhood with its own congregation uh, presents themselves in a way that makes sense. If the, the Emory church, for example, which was which is in our temple, you know, it, it's on the campus of a prestigious university. And so, you know, the nature of the sermons, who gets picked to be the minister for that church, what kind of sermons that person gives, the kind of music they play, obviously it, it caters to a very, you know, highly educated audience. And if you find churches in blue collar white neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, this, that, the other thing, they're going to have music and sermons which, you know, reaches, which really makes sense to that congregation. 
I, I understand that argument, but that's in a much broader Christian tradition. Of what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, I'll, I'll tell you, do you want to know what the local temples around American cities will respect? Not you're going to them and begging, can we work together? I mean, I mean, they'll respect the fact that you respect them. We're not against them. We don't speak against them. We recognize them as part of our spiritual family. But what they'll really respect is success. If we go out and do it and we're successful, and if Prabhupada, I mean, if, if you can do it that way, if, if you can get the local temple to facilitate Western preaching, fine. I'm not saying, you know, don't do that. If you can show practically that you can do a very successful Western preaching program in conjunction with the administration of the Mount Airy Temple, then I give you all credit. My personal my, my point is theoretically that would be a better path. I don't think so. I, I, I don't think so. That that's just not that's not what's happening in America. Well, no, I understand. I understand the challenges of and, and you've decided. I just, I just, I just, but no, I just don't see why it's better. Let, let's say, let's say here are two scenarios. Scenario one, Mount Airy, and every Wednesday or something, there's a Western program. Scenario two, there's a Western program that has its own venues and everything. It's not clear to me why scenario one is intrinsically better for Prabhupada. I, I don't see it. Um, I, I think you end up with more devotees, understanding the first purpose of ISKCON of society at large. I would say that I would say that 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 the relationship between local temples that have primarily Indian congregations and Western preaching programs, that the relationship will really become sublime when both sides see the other side as an equal partner. Not when one side sees that, you know, this is really the Hare Krishna movement. So yeah, you can, you know, maybe on Wednesdays or something, we can give you some space. I, I, I think when, uh, I think when, when, when there's mutual respect and there's mutual, and then there's success on both sides, that's just my experience. You know, you may have your experience, although I don't know what that is, but I have had a lot of experience and I've seen a lot of places. And I believe that, it seems the most successful programs are ones that do it this way. And I'm not, you know, I'm all for cooperation. We're all one family. It's all Prabhupada's ISKCON. And, and if, you know, if you can do it that way, I totally support you. But based on my personal experience, I'm proposing something which I've seen is seems to be much more likely to be successful. So it's a more of a go it alone strategy with like-minded people and that's what Prabhupada asked us to do he said he said ISKCON exists to train people to be independently thoughtful independently thoughtful that everyone you know Prabhupada sent me to Latin America I didn't depend I didn't bring a bunch of Americans down there we did we just did it locally Prabhupada loved that Prabhupada said, I'll give you an example we um when Prabhupada came to my zone in Latin America and uh <clears throat> So he was answering letters that were sent to him. And then when he left, somehow his secretary left behind in the Caracas temple, all the letters that Prabhupada had received and then copies of his replies. And so I went through it one day and Bhagavan, when he's GVC in Southern Europe, he sent Prabhupada a picture of he got acquired another castle. He, he was like loved castles. So he got this castle in Geneva 
And there was a picture of all the devotees sitting there in front of the castle. And Prabhupada said, that's very nice. But are those local people? Do you make those devotees? Or are you just like recycling other people? And so Prabhupada admired, respected individual initiative. He identified with it. That's what he did. He went to New York. He started his own thing. And so if someone went out and had the courage and the strength, the devotion to go out and create a program, that's what Prabhupada really admired. And so if we cooperate, we don't make trouble, we don't fight, we don't criticize, we don't offend anyone. We're, you know, peaceful members of the family, but we do our program our way with our leaders. And if we do that, I think Prabhupada would be very happy about it. I don't see how it's intrinsically better for Prabhupada if we don't do that. And if you can show that it's possible, if you come to me and say, hey, you've got all these leaders from the Mount Airy Temple, you know, they want to do everything possible to help you. They're going to provide this and provide that. I mean, I heard very opposite stories from some ISKCON leaders about what happened when they, I've, I've spoken to ISKCON leaders who tried to do that with the Mount Airy Temple and got very, very different results. But maybe things have changed, you know, times change. So if you can show that you're getting really great results that way, I will salute you. All right. Here's my other perspective of from the public at large, that they don't know the, uh, the Hare Krishna movement. If you ask them, they know very little what we're about to begin with. So if you if they see two things from their limited neophyte position, do they, you know, feel that they're, uh, you know, kind of choosing between one or the other or Uh, what do people do if they go they move to Atlanta and it turns out there, you know, there's hundreds of Methodist churches. They don't think, oh, I guess the Methodists are are not really a serious institution because they have so many churches. People think the opposite. If you see all these Methodist churches in Atlanta, you think, ah, I guess they're a successful church. And and then what people do, what real human beings do, is they choose a church. Like, where do I like the the preacher? Where do I like the congregation? Where do I have friends? They actually did studies. They did studies to show what are the main factors that lead people to join a particular church. And what the studies showed is that people join churches, number one, because it's you know not too far away from where they live. And number two, not necessarily in this order, because they have friends there, because they like that they 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 make they have friends there. They go there and they make friends and they, you know, and they they feel these are my people, these are my friends. That's why people go to churches. No, I, I understand. I once asked and, and, Yeah, so so the so the so the fact that people so the fact that people see that there's a church, let's say a temple in Mount Airy, and then there's a program, you know, Krishna West, or there's a Western type program. People probably just think good menu, good restaurant. You know, you can you can get this dish, you can get that dish. You know, there's something for everyone. All right, I hear you. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. I want to. Where is um, Brindavaneshwari? Thank you, thank you, David. I appreciate your uh, input. Hare Krishna Krishna Maharaj, thank you so much. No, I I just wanted to thank you, that's all. I think the discussion has been very lively and wonderful. I'm just taking it in at this point. So thank you, Maharaj. Thank you. (laughs) All glories to you. All glories to Prabhupada. All glories to you. Thank you. I really appreciate you guys attending. Hare Krishna. 
So did someone else? Yes, please. Oh, good old Ariaswa, the Philly cheesesteak, isn't it? Phil, you got You got to turn your microphone on. Please accept my humble obeisance. This is all Ariasa, you. How you doing? I'm good. I, I I've listened to so much that you said, and naturally, you know, so many of those things they make sense. But I have a couple questions. My point is, is that many of many of us have tried a Western approach, and I find that the one big barrier that's happening and it's happening within this con is that we've become compromised in, in our um, value system. And without something very strong to bring the devotees, you spoke of the, the simplicity and the family. What is, um, what is your angle that to strengthen us so that the association right. generally, when we put back on Western clothes, we associate closely how do we become stronger and okay. less compromised in great question that, that's a great question Haryaswa. that's a great question and it gives me a chance to uh, browbeat you all for a little while longer okay here's here's my point that um there is a tradition in iskon which i think is um unfortunate and illusory and it goes back to the early days. And that is that we tend to associate a more Western lifestyle. You can see superficially, like how you dress or, you know, stuff like that, style of music, whatever, with being weaker in spiritual life, that people who are stronger in spiritual life, doty up and sorry up. And then when you become weaker in spiritual life, then you kind of merge a little more into Western culture. And, 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 you know, and for many people, that was true. But I think that ultimately that's a, a deep misunderstanding for the fall. I mean, I'm not saying what we saw in history. I mean, what we saw is what we saw. But here's how I think we should think about these things. Um, that, um, in, first of all, in Krishna West, we actually are very serious about things like chanting your rounds, following the four principles, chastity between men and women. Um, you know, good family. We try to we try to promote good families and so on. And so, here's how I look at it: because ISKCON, let's say what I call traditional ISKCON, traditional ISKCON, the whole Indian thing, because. It so obviously doesn't really work with Western people. I mean, a few, there are Indophiles among Western people, but in general among Western people, it just doesn't work. And therefore, ISKCON has developed this whole intercontinental industry of faking it. In other words, when you present Krishna consciousness, it's a yoga studio, it's astrology, it's Ayurveda. It's uh, Vastu Shastra. You know, it's anything but actually surrendering to the person Krishna. And for example, I gave a, a class in, uh, it was, it was a, uh, a program in America at a very prestigious university. And so the devotees who were organizing the program were, were nice people, nice devotees, but they said, uh, don't mention the word God or religion. 
in your talk. So I thought, says who? Anyway, so then when I started my lecture, the first thing I said was the topic of my lecture is, why is it that in today's world, among educated people, you're not supposed to say God or religion? And then I traced the history of God and religion, going back to Greco-Roman times and explained the whole thing, like how that came about historically. And so, and at the end, the students said, best class they ever went to, bought all the books off the table. So in ISKCON, because if you're a Western preacher and you know that if you just give the full on Indian thing, most people aren't gonna buy it. And so therefore it's like, you know, we do restaurants. I mean, Prabhupada wanted restaurants. I'm not saying we shouldn't do restaurants. But I'm saying it's like we do everything but just direct presentation of Krishna consciousness. My point is that when you don't look like a pious Martian, you know, when you actually just like a normal person that people can relate to, that gives you the freedom to be not less direct, but more direct. I remember, for example, when I first learned about I was first started to visit the temple in LA in, in summer of 69. I was home from school. And uh, you know, I had lots of friends. And uh, I, I started to get excited about chanting. I saw my consciousness was changing. And I was telling all my friends about it. There was zero, there was zero resistance. There was zero resistance. Why? Because I was normal. I was a normal guy. They liked me, you know, I liked them. We were friends. There was zero, it was like, there was a time back in the early days of the movement when Krishna was like this really interesting, mysterious, beautiful print, you know, thing from India. And everyone was interested. It wasn't weird. It wasn't off-putting. And, and all my friends, you know, some of my friends became devotees and because it wasn't weird. And I was, for example, that same summer, um, uh, a cousin, it's like a third, third cousin or whatever it was, a girl came to LA. She lived back east, and so the family got together, and decided that I should show her around LA because I was kind of, you know, I was closest to her age. She was this beautiful blonde girl cousin, and so, um, so I, I was just taking her around LA, and then you know naturally had to go to all the usual places, Hollywood Boulevard or Sunset Strip. And so we ran into a Harinam party. And I didn't know it then, but it was like, you know, Tamal Krishna and Vishnu Jana. So we ran into the, you know, and they were kind of like, you know, it was the Vedic Rockettes, you know, they were dancing in line. And so I was standing there and I told my cousin, uh, oh yeah, let's do this. And of course she was like, I was from California. So anything I said like that, super cool. So it was like that back then. So we started chanting and then I actually thought to myself, and I had never been to a Hare Krishna temple. I didn't even know what the philosophy was. I just knew this is real and I want to know more about this. So I thought, should I stay here and chant where I am? Because I knew the doors of Berkeley a little bit. Or should I get into the chorus line? And um, I decided, I mean, I think Krishna told me in my heart, better you stay where you are because you are a normal person. And if people see a normal person chanting, they'll be more inclined to do it themselves. And so the point is, I don't have to say it's Ayurveda. I don't have to say it's Hatha Yoga. I don't have to say it's 
you know, it's Vastu Shastra. I don't have to say it's Jyotish. I can just say it's Bhakti Yoga. You know, we're, we're, it's about Krishna. Why? Because I have a lot of credibility because I'm a normal, respectable person. And so in ISKCON, what you do, what you see in ISKCON, you have this radical dichotomy where the orthodox presentation is literally just from Mars or some other faraway planet, you know, with all the exotic dress and the exotic music. And so therefore, if you really want to reach Western people, you got to sort of reinvent yourself and say it's this and say it's that. But if you're normal, if you're not exotic, you don't have to say it's something else. You can just go straight to the point. This is bhakti yoga. It's about the, like Prabhupada said, the fact that the, the ultimate truth is infinitely beautiful and full of unlimited pleasure. And you can experience that. And you just go right into it. You go right into bhakti yoga. And that's what I've found. I can talk to anybody about what I do because I'm normal. And, and, and also because I know what the boundaries are. I don't think that because I'm wearing this shirt, therefore I can just, you know, scarf down a bunch of onion and garlic, or I can, you know, go out with girls on the side, or I can, you know, take a little drug, or I can do this, or I can do that, or I don't have to get up early in the morning. I don't think that. I think we're so conditioned to think that if you don't wear the Indian clothes, then you're not a serious devotee. For example, in India, I found that in South India, like the most Christian part of India is Kerala in Southwest India. And so I noticed that in Kerala, especially back in those days when people in India actually wore dhotis and things, that um, Indian Christians felt they were better Christians if they wore Western clothes. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's really based on objective spiritual principles. I think it's, it's just your everyday human social psychology. Well, I, I maybe I misrepresent myself. I'm used to the Western dress. Right. So that's not the point. My point is we are already compromised. The, how, the, how, the so? Society, how so? How so? How so? How so compromised? Um you the, the yoga, the yoga places, all the different places that we connect with, you find that our mainstream society has lessened, has we, uh, our, 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 our strictness has become compromised. You know, um, the mm -hmm. chanting becomes less, the regulated I'll, principles. I'll tell you why, I'll tell you why I think that is. I'll tell you why I think that is. I'm glad you're bringing this up, Ariasha. It's because you follow more strictly when you have a higher taste. If you don't have a higher taste, you're not going to be strict. And you know where the higher taste comes from? Straightforward preaching. And so, you know, if I'm a Hatha yoga teacher and I got all these girls in the tight stuff and everything, and, and, you know, and I'm saying it's about yoga and feel that in your body, I mean, my God, I mean, what normal guy is not going to go down like a ton of bricks? So the point is, it is straightforward preaching, is being able to say to the world, I am a bhakti yogi or yogini, that I'm teaching about Krishna. That's who I am. That's what I do. And when in Krishna West, you're not embarrassed to do that. Because it was in Philadelphia, actually. When Prabhupada came for a Rathayatra in Philadelphia, 
and he's being interviewed by some young lady who was a reporter. And, um, you know, she was a friend of the devotees. It was kind of, I saw it sort of what I call Prabhupada C-SPAN, you know, sort of the unedited footage. And it's very interesting because this re- girl, who's a nice girl, she's trying to be helpful and do an article about the Hare Krishna movement. She asked Prabhupada a question. And Prabhupada, Prabhupada, it, it was one of those many cases I've seen where Prabhupada and a Western reporter didn't really communicate efficiently. So when she asked cultural linguistic differences, so when she asked that question, Prabhupada kind of didn't understand the question. So she kind of politely went on to another question. But when I heard that question, I was like, ding, 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 ding. And here was the question she asked. <clears throat> she said, and I'm paraphrasing here. I can't remember exactly. She said that, you know, you have all these disciples. And she was very respectful to Prabhupada. You have these disciples. And they're going out every day, you know, Sankirtan, selling books or chanting, whatever. And a lot of people in the public think they're crazy. And she said, do you think, are you afraid that that is going to have a bad effect psychologically, I think she meant, on your students? And when I heard that, it's like, boom, the lights went on. And I realized that, um, that it's like we have basic human needs. You know, we have basic human needs. Like Krishna says, don't eat too much or too little. Don't sleep too much or too little. And so, frankly, one of our basic human needs is the need to be accepted. The need to be accepted within a community or society. That is a basic human need. And when you go out in public and people think you're a freak and people think you're crazy, that has a deep psychological effect that you may not be aware of. And what I realized after kind of studying this First of all, ISKCON is a movement which, at least in the past, was extremely self-marginalizing. Because we were neophytes and because we feared the outside world because it was all Maya and we came from that dark place. And so if you look at the attitude, the relationship of devotees with the outer world in America and India, it's very different. Because in India, everyone worships the devotees. They're the white sadhus. And so you find devotees letting down all the barriers and even adopting Indian dress, even when it's Muslim and they don't give it down. Like you go to a Namahatta program in Iskand, you know, and the men are wearing those long shirts and everything. The women are wearing their Punjabis. It has nothing to do with you know, Vaishnavism, but it's Indian. And the Indians are the people that like us. And so if you look at the attitude in the West, you see the, the, the way, it's just like, for example, let's say you, like, like um, you're about to touch something which is very hot. And even before you realize it, your nerve, your hands kind of pulls away. It's sort of like an automatic way the body's protecting itself. And so there are certain automatic ways that you may not be aware of that your nervous system is protecting itself. Because if you live in a society where people think you're crazy and weird, uh, that is threatening, that is harm, that is painful. And so the way your nervous system protects itself is that you have to marginalize, you have to marginalize the people who are marginalizing you. And you find this in race relations, you find this in fights between ethnic groups, you find this um, all over the place. 
So that, for example, why is it so many times in, in a Sunday lecture, the worst possible place to do it, the speaker will bash you know, the, the karmis or talk about the four regular principles, like we're better than you, you know, we're pure and you're dogs. And so therefore, ISKCON has like marginalizes the outside world. And therefore devotees, when they want to preach, they have to kind of let those barriers down. They have to go out there, but they, you see, you can't be yourself. You can't just be a full on devotee when you go out to Western preaching because people ridicule you, people will reject you. And so therefore you do yoga, you do vastu, you do this, you do that. And because you're doing that, because you're compromising, because if you were just yourself as a full on, you know, sort of Indian devotee, then people would, you know, they would marginalize you. And so what happens is in, in, in compromising in order to get through to Western people, you end up weakening yourself. And so if you can be a straightforward devotee, honest, I'm a Vaishnava, I'm a Bhakti Yogi, I practice Krishna consciousness, I'm a follower of Prabhupada, and you can do that in a way that does not marginalize you, that does not separate, doesn't build a high wall of cultural separation from the people you're trying to reach, then you can be yourself, you can be strong, you can preach directly, you can get a higher taste, and you can do it all in a way that doesn't scare Western people away. Because that's what made us strong in the past. It wasn't just that we lived in temples. It was the fact that we were practicing Krishna consciousness. We were going out and selling books. We were serving. And that's what made us strong. We had a higher taste. And so if you can get that higher taste by direct preaching in a way that doesn't frighten away the Western people, then you'll be strong. So that's why, I mean, I think that in Krishna West, what I'm actually seeing is that it makes people strong. They get back their higher taste and they don't want to do stupid things. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to see you again. Good to see you, Maharaj. So uh, any other question? Jai Sita is always an honorary member of every Philadelphia activity. Prabhu? Oh, I'm sorry. Vatsala. Vatsala. Yes. Hare Krishna. Hridayananda Prabhu. Thank you, Maharaj. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. You presented a different um, uh, style of conversation. We, I have never heard from anybody like this. And I have a confusion when you were explaining about uh, Western style of preaching. Is it versus Eastern style of preaching? Uh, I mean, what my question is, I have been here for over 50 years now. Um, so uh, I do love Srila Prabhupada's books and all that. Um, but the thing is, my if I want to uh, uh, direct or something to do for my children, they don't, they are not they are Western broad. They wear Western style clothing. But how, when I want to uh, approach somebody in my own way, how do I do that? And I'm not sure whether, whether I understood um, Eastern style of approach or Western style of approach. Can you clarify that for me, please? Thank you. Thank you. Do you have a video? I don't want, I'm wearing a hat, I'm cold. <laughs> oh, that's okay. It was like, nice to see you. 
Anyway, so um, it's a good question. It's a very good question. And of course, you are absolutely welcome to participate fully in everything we do. And um, there, how should I put it? Um, there are different cultures. I'm absolutely not saying that Western culture is better. And I'm definitely not saying that. And uh, I'm simply saying that people within a certain culture kind of understand each other and, they, and, and, and people, it's just a fact of life that people sort of feel comfortable with people who are like them. And it doesn't mean you can't participate. Of course you can participate. I mean, we want you to participate. It's that, um, yeah, trying to find a way to make them feel comfortable. And just like, for example, uh, when I do programs with Indian communities, and I've done hundreds of them, then uh, the Indian devotees were my friends. They, you know, explained to me, okay, this is kind of where the people are coming from. And, and I tried to study the Indian community, say in America, understand what their needs are, what their psychology is. And when I give lectures to, to say the Indian communities in America, they're not the same lectures because I'm trying to reach them. I'm trying to speak to them. And, I, and I'm trying to understand them. So, um, yeah, I think where there's a will, there's a way. I think if you, you know, let's all work together and you're intelligent, I'm sure you'll figure it out. It'd be a great asset. So it doesn't matter what you wear, but as long as you follow Srila Prabhupada's um, injunctions and you follow the Bhakti Yoga, that's what it matters. Yeah. It comes from your heart. Yeah, and, and we have to dress decently. I mean, Krishna yes. and the Bhagavad Gita always talks about the mode of goodness. I mean, the ironic thing is that a huge proportion of the prasadam offered in the temples, the deities, doesn't even qualify as the mode of goodness, according to Krishna. Krishna specifically says that spicy food is in the mode of passion. He says that food in the mode of goodness is healthy. I mean, if you live off maha prasadam, you'll probably curtail your lifespan. And so, you know, healthy, nutritious food, that's what Krishna recommends. And, you know, it can be an Indian recipe, it can be a Western, it can be Mexican, it doesn't matter. So, um, yeah, when I, when I go to India, I don't go very often, but when I do Indian programs, I, you know, I work with the local Indian devotees and I, I you know, they help me to make an appropriate presentation. So I think if you really, in your heart, you really want to do this for Prabhupada, then Krishna will enlighten you and you'll do valuable service. Thank you very much, Maharaj. Thank you very much. I do appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Hare Krishna. So, Dronacharya. Hare Krishna, Maharaj. Thank you for a very uh, interesting and engaging talk. Um, very thought-provoking. Um, I, I, I've listened to your lectures um, throughout the years, and I've always found them to be very, very progressive and just... Um, Really, really stretches my mind. Um, Thank uh, you. So I appreciate it very, very much. Um, and you taking the time to be with us tonight. Um, so the the idea of kind of decentralization of, and I really like, you know, the example you made of the Methodist churches and how they're, you know, they're all over the place. It's just not one Methodist church and everybody from all of Atlanta or any city just comes to that one Methodist church. And um, it's an idea that, you know, I've, I've been thinking about it for a while and just, it seems to be that there's this fear of, of, of division, 
because division is seen as something that's unhealthy. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, okay, so I can just jump in for a second. I would say that what is dividing us is the attempt, which Prabhupada always rejected, at centralization. In other words, if everyone has breathing room, it's easy to get along with your neighbors when you have your own place. And you know, they say good fences make good neighbors. And so I, I, I think the most dangerous thing or that which most threatens the relationships between, let's say, devotees, devotees from different cultural backgrounds is that one group or the other feels they don't have the freedom to do things their own way. And then that, that produces resentment. And so um, mutual respect. The, for example, when I see the, let's say, the devotees in, in a traditional temple, many of which are you know, have, have large Indian congregations. When I see them reaching other people in the community, I applaud them, I cheer them on. I think that's great. You're doing wonderful service for Prabhupada. And they should be cheering us on. And, and, and if it degrades to the point of a you know, power struggle, like we want to control you, no, we don't. I mean, how could I, if I see someone, you or anyone else, go out and, and, and really try to reach people and bring Krishna into their lives, and I see you're cooperating with other preachers, you're a gentleman, why wouldn't I just applaud you? So we should be very careful about not, about people not being possessive and power hungry in the name of Vedic culture. I've seen that too much. I've seen temple presidents who really just, you know, have anarthas and want to control other people or, and, and so therefore they try to justify it all by saying it's Vedic culture. The point is real Vaishnavas are delighted to see other Vaishnavas preaching and we all cooperate together. We have mutual respect. We appreciate each other's service and, and it, it's a cooperative effort to save the planet and we're reaching out to different communities. Thank you. How's uh, the... So the some so the tension that you were explaining about just then um, within the community, you know, that, that sometimes because it's almost like a forced cooperation that we're trying to create. Um, can that tension be seen as Krishna urging or calling us to actually grow and expand? And yes, and, that that that's the um, I, I read you that quote from Prabhupada. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll read it again. It's exactly what Prabhupada said. He said the Krishna consciousness movement, come on, clicking on it. Okay, there we go. He said the Krishna consciousness movement is meant for training men to be independently thoughtful and competent, not for making bureaucracy. Bureaucracy means one person decides and everyone else has to get permission. And Prabhupada said that will spoil everything. That will spoil everything. Once there is bureaucracy, the whole thing will be spoiled. There must be always individual striving and responsibility. It's like Dina Daya, my good old sister. I mean, she's, you know, she's very intelligent and uh, made a, you know, a great career for herself. She's intelligent. And, you know, you're all intelligent. So Prabhupada says independently thoughtful, independently competent. The competitive spirit. When, when Prabhupada sent me Latin America and, and it kind of it really boomed, I would say it mushroomed, but we don't use words like that. So 
but the movement really grew quickly in Latin America, so much so that after I'd been there like a year and a half or something, we actually beat the Rotodometer Party in the December Marathon. That was like, that was the World Cup, the World Series, and the Super Bowl all, you know, all in one. And then right after that marathon, Tamal Krishna and I both, you know, went to L.A. to see Prabhupada. And so we were walking with Prabhupada on either side of him, and Prabhupada was kind of teasing Tamal and saying, he's kind of in his own way of talking, Prabhupada was saying like, hey, he beat you, you going to take that? And so, and then Prabhupada laughed. We were all laughing because he saw there was good, you know, it was a Vaishnav competition. Prabhupada said, I like this competition. Competition without offense, without envy, without insult. There was competition among friends. Prabhupada said, it's good. It makes us do more. Why did we sell so many books? Among other reasons, because we were competing. And that's even in the spiritual world. It's right there. Prabhupada said, you know, the coward boys are running. I'll be the first to touch Krishna. No, I'll be the first to touch Krishna. So you just throw this big wet blanket over everything. And this bureaucracy, well, I should be preaching, but I can't because this person who has absolutely nothing to do with my program, you know, said that he doesn't know if I should do that. It's everything that Prabhupada didn't want. I mean, I admire all of you for your because you're all ladies and gentlemen, you don't want to, you know, offend anyone or do anything wrong. And I admire your, your character. But the point is, we're not going to get this movement going unless we step out as ladies and gentlemen and just get the job done. There's nothing stopping you from going out and reaching people, inviting them for a program or going to their house. No one's stopping you. It's like this phantom obstacle like of you know the long arm of the ISKCON bureaucracy is stopping me. There is no bureaucracy. There's nothing. It's not there. It doesn't exist. It's just you and the people of your area. To bring the the talk full circle, going back to your original point of Tadvadi Pradipatena, um, could it also be a factor in that? The level of comfort of doing that, um, not feeling, um, I guess, empowered to, to that one actually knows the truth enough to actually. Same thing, the Kantian categorical imperative. If everyone in Philadelphia knew what you knew, would Philadelphia be better, the same, or worse? Be very good. Yeah, it would be much the better. spiritual world. Much better. It's not that I don't know, and I don't know much, so but it's still but, well, you know enough to change the world if everyone thought like you did. So just tell people what you know. I mean, we have to do this for Prabhupada. I, and so anyway, also I'd like to introduce my disciple Jagannath. Jagannath, smile at the people. Actually, he smiles anyway. But even I didn't say it, he probably would have smiled anyway. Anyway, in our Krishna West, I've asked Jagannath to help serve the devotees in your area to organize Krishna West programs. So maybe Jagannath could put in the chat, do they all have your contact information? Yeah, it's down there. I see it. Yes, I do. So I, I'm, I'm requesting Jagannath to, you know, we want to serve you, we want to help. And so if we could organize programs, you know, you're all good, intelligent people. You have experience. 
and let's just do something for Prabhupada. And as far as other temples and things, we'll be ladies and gentlemen. We'll be nice. But uh, I mean, when Prabhupada, for example, when the book distributors, when book distribution was really taking off in ISKCON, and you had a lot of traveling parties, and some of the local GBCs and temple presidents complained because traveling parties were coming through. And Prabhupada, of course, he wanted cooperation, but he never said that, you know, they couldn't do that. Prabhupada approved the idea that if someone's getting out his books, if someone is preaching, then let them preach. Don't stop them. Cooperation, yes. You know, and mutual respect, yes. But you have a right. You have a God-given right to save the people of your city. You have a God-given right, and you have a duty. You don't need to wait for someone to vote on it. You know, if you invite people to your house, if you go to their house, you don't, you don't, you don't. ISKCON has not become such a crazy bureaucracy that you need some committee to vote before you can invite someone to come to your house for prasadam, or you can tell them about Krishna, or invite them to come to some place wherever you choose and chant Hare Krishna. I mean, we're not that crazy that you need some committee to vote on it. You know that joke, you must know the joke about the definition of a camel. Camel is a horse uh, designed by a committee. I mean, Haryasa, you're like, you know, you're a senior distinguished Vaishnava. And, and, and I'm so, just old. <laughs> no, you are a faithful, you are a faithful servant of Prabhupada. And, and my sister, good old Dina. You know, and, and so many devotees I may not know right now, may not know you as well, but um, why not do this? Why not do this for Prabhupada? You know, you all have free will. Prabhupada needs us. No one can deny the need. All of you are qualified to make a contribution. All of you can save souls. So anyway, I'll ask Jagannath to, you know, stay in touch with you all. And then let's do something. Why not Philadelphia? <laughs> what is, what is that? WC Fields? He can be on our logo, Krishna West Philadelphia. Put WC Fields on a logo. So, any other question? I know I've taken a lot of your time. I'd like to thank Ananda Leela also. She manages, that's actually Jagannath's wife. It's a dynamic duo. I won't comment on who is Batman and who is Robin, but um, Nandalila manages all of her online stuff. It's dedicated to that. So Dina, Sister G. <laughs> so um, maybe maybe we'll end here. And um, I'm very grateful to you and to all the people that came. I mean, I realize everybody's very busy. I really appreciate your time. And Jagannath's there. He's very happy to help. And um, let's try to do something. Yeah, we're really inspired. <laughs> Thank you very much. I am too. I mean, I really, I think very highly of all of you. I mean, I appreciate you've come. I think Philadelphia is a very important city. It's one of the great American cities. All kinds of schools, colleges, and all kinds of other things. And so, yeah, let's try to do something. And I'm here if anyone, if I can help you in any way. Uh, Feel free to call.
Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. All right. Hare Krishna. Thank you so much, Maharaj. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. I really appreciate your coming. It was really a pleasure to spend time with all of you. Thank you very much. We, and we were inspired by your talk. Thank you. Hare Krishna. I hope we'll see you again soon. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.